and welcome to Game Breaking Feature, the podcast where we analyze and discuss common elements of modern video game design and development. My name is Stephen Bennett, and in this week's episode, we will be talking about the pursuit of realism in graphics. Why do some games try to emulate real life? Have any games actually achieved perfect realism? Also, does anyone care? To help me answer these questions and many more is a man who, if you squint your eyes hard enough, almost looks real. My good friend, Jared Bruner. Jared, how you doing, buddy? Hey, glad to be here, man. How are you? I'm doing pretty good, man. Pretty good. I've uh, been a little bit busy this week, but man, am I excited because today we have our very first guest. He's a talented artist and a friend of the show. He's worked as an environment artist on Archer. He's now a freelance CG generalist and compositor. It's JJ Chalupnik. JJ, welcome to the show, man. How are you doing? Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Of course, man. Yeah. Thank you for uh, being free and offering to uh, to help us out with this. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, It's a fun show. I enjoy listening to you guys talk about all these game isms. Cool, man. Well, for people who might not be so familiar with you, um, what is your background in video games? Like, how did you get involved in games? Well, I've been playing games my whole life. Uh, It's a pretty familiar story. Uh, I started probably on Nintendo, like many, many of our peers. And uh, really, it was Metal Gear Solid on PlayStation 1 and... Uh, Ocarina of Time and Mega Man Legends of all games that just kind of made me really want to get into games. Um, and I, I ended up pursuing film, um, film and animation in college because we didn't really have a games program. So I sort of ventured in that direction and it, it took me into advertising, which then took me into Archer, which now took me to Los Angeles. And, and now I'm, uh, basically doing visual effects and, and uh, compositing and CG stuff uh, for different television shows like uh, Madam Secretary, Teen Wolf, and um, a few others, NCIS. Uh, yeah, so some stuff like that. So because of my generalist background, I feel like there's a lot of uh, software tasks, you know, modeling, texturing, rigging, animation, a lot of those things are covered. I, I can manage those things. I can learn what I need to learn or practice techniques to get where I need to go for that. The stuff that's really challenging is the programming, the uh, the game design, the um, uh, aspects of logic, game logic, game loops, things like that. Uh, those are the real challenges for me at this point. Uh, so uh, I've got a couple of projects that I'm working on. One is sort of... Um, uh, a callback to my childhood uh, where I'm, I'm kind of repurposing and rebuilding the first 15 minutes of Mega Man Legends uh, in Unreal Engine 4. And the goal is to kind of not have questions about the things that I don't know. Um, the, the idea would be because I know the design of Mega Man Legends, because I know and understand uh, how it's built and what needs to happen, I don't have to ask those questions. So I just have to hit a target. And so for me, uh, learning that side of development is going to be a really fun project because I get to go back to something I'm really passionate about, uh, as well as, uh, you know, work on AI, work on uh, navigation, work on targeting systems, uh, inventory systems, and just basic game design trigger event volumes and things like that. Um, So that's that's something I'm working on right now. My goal is to try and get through that. I've already got it blocked out. I've got one of the villains uh the high poly uh reaver bots built 
Um, I still got to build Mega Man and stuff. And it's kind of in line with uh, Crygen X, I think is his name, uh, from YouTube. I don't know if you guys are familiar. Mm-mm. I am not. Um, he builds like um, uh, Legend of Zelda, Ocarina of Time. He's been doing like a whole Unreal Engine 4 series, which is it's really it's kind of like a fan project. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so for me, it's really not about, you know, releasing it or doing anything fancy with it. It's more about just learning and getting uh, a solid understanding of how to build uh, a complete project from beginning, middle and end. That's Uh, cool. It's like I find it sort of ironic because a lot of the uh, indie stories I hear, people kind of know the programming side first and then uh, they end up doing a bunch of pixel art because uh, that's a lot easier for them to do. So it kind of seems like your story is like a little bit of the of the reverse of that. You you know all the modeling and how how to how to texture everything. Uh, now you need to to learn all the all the programming and uh, all that kind of stuff. Well, I I can't tell you which one's harder. I'm sure uh, <laughs> I'm sure uh, the challenges are cut out for both parties. I uh, I definitely know I have my work cut out for me. And after I finish this project, I have uh, an indie game um i've got like a 26 page game design doc that i've already fleshed out and um not really ready to share it yet but um you guys will probably be familiar with it you'll probably be one of the first people i send it to to play test oh, that'd be amazing. <laughs> well i mean it it sounds like with your experience in animation and design you are the perfect person for us to get for this episode but we are talking about uh the pursuit of realism in graphics um and Let's, I guess we'll start this episode out the way that we have been trying to start out some of our other episodes, which is a, a little history lesson about uh, the origins of realism and graphics. Um, were you able to find anything on your research, Jared? Because I, I, I found something, but I, I, don't, I don't know if this counts. Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan featured like one of the earliest and most impressive uh, computer-generated graphic sequences of the time. Um, basically it was the seeding of a planet and they called it the Genesis effect. And, uh, it took over two years, two people years of work to do. And they kind of based it off of, uh, NASA's, uh, JPL, um, simulations of, of, you know, planet flybys and stuff like that. But if you get a chance, look it up on YouTube. It's actually pretty cool. Um, and it kind of blew people away when it came out. And this is uh, 1982. Yeah, it came out in 1982, and it was at the time like one of the one of the like most mind blowing computer effects ever because it was full fully rendered 3D, uh, like a full planet flyby. Uh, one of the things uh, in the video I watched, it was you know pointing out things like motion blur of stars, and I think they actually um, had accurate star maps so that you could see where uh, the Big Dipper was and stuff like that, and kind of kind of pinpoint where they were supposed to be in this in this fictional world or this fictional planet so it was a it was a big feat for computer generated graphics at the time yeah it looks like it just looking at it right now it's pretty crazy to think that that was done in 82 well let's take a trip back uh 20 years before that to what's essentially one of the earliest video games ever made uh it's a game called space war came out in 1962 and uh I don't know. You get you guys may disagree with me on whether or not this counts as the first game that was pursuing realistic graphics, but it essentially featured two ships that were orbiting a star, uh, and they were attempting to shoot each other down. The ships and the star were rendered by these 
sort of angular vector shapes. The game also featured physics, like a gravitational pull around the star. So you were truly orbiting the star and the projectiles were affected by the gravity. The reason I put this as a uh, early demonstration of the pursuit of realism in graphics is because it, it wasn't really trying to demonstrate something abstract, like a, like a game of tic-tac-toe or even like Pong, uh, although Pong came out years later. Um, they were trying to recreate what it looked like for for uh, some spaceships to be in outer space. Yeah, like so, I think that's it's that's a, probably a good space to start, right? Because you're looking at this shape, and it obviously looks like a spaceship, and it, there's obviously stars behind it. So it's probably one of the the earliest attempts at being uh, a realistic. I feel like the I feel like in general the goal with design is is always a kind of a form follows function so it's one of those things where you know back then they just weren't capable of producing any kind of quality graphics um, so you have to start somewhere and in order to provide context for what the player is supposed to be doing you know you use you use ships or you use uh, you know laser beams or cannons or you know whatever the whatever the device is the visual device to communicate that idea uh, and in, in a lot of ways, modern graphics and modern technology is just doing the same thing. It just has a much better way of communicating those ideas. Yeah, absolutely. The thing that I think is kind of interesting about this example is that um, Space War is considered one of the first true video games for a couple of reasons. But one of the big ones is that it was designed to be transmittable. You could take it, you could play it on your computer and then take a disc out, go over to someone else's computer and play it on there. And the fact that it's considered one of the first video games um, for that reason, among several others, uh, and it also is pursuing realistic graphics, I think is is kind of interesting. And for the time, you only needed $10,000 to run it. Well, yeah, I mean, it was literally, I think it was kind of shared between universities who happened to have the specific machine that the the program was running on. So yeah, it wasn't like you took it over to your friend's house and jammed on Space War over there. It was a bunch of... I mean, literal university nerds. It's got to start somewhere. Still pretty cool. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty cool. All right, let's talk about games that we're currently playing that, that utilize realistic graphics. I think this might be sort of a good, a good point for us to launch into some discussion about modern design. So, JJ, I'll point the question at you first. Are you playing anything right now that's uh, attempting to recreate the reality we all live in? Are we limited to explicitly talking about photoreal attempts or can I talk about some stylized games too? Well, I mean, we'll, I think we'll, our discussion will move towards that direction, but is there anything right now that you're playing that, uh, you look at and you go, wow, man, we're getting, we're getting close. Um, I would say, uh, well, what I'm playing right now is Witcher three. Um, I've been playing it for way too long at this point, You and me um, both, man. but yeah, it's, it's a, it's a beast of a game for sure. Um, I'm really enjoying that, and there's certainly a lot of uh, stylized sort of qualities about the graphics, but it, it also, you know, attempts to reach into that familiar uh, realistic territory. Uh, I think they straddle the uncanny valley with, you know, uh, more animated features pretty well. Yeah, it's just far enough removed from reality that uh, I feel like they're not trying to be hyper-realistic, but uh, you can definitely, you know... the. We'll get into this too, but like the animations in that game are, are outstanding, and I think carry a long ways. 
now definitely and i uh, sorry i was just going to ask what elements of the game do you guys feel they're not reaching for reality because i i have yet to play it i really want to uh, and i mean to get around to it at some point but a lot of what i see it, it looks like they're straight up going for uh realistic graphic realistic character models realistic environment design so what what elements are keeping both of you from stating that they're 100 going for a real look well the first thing i'd say is uh the fact that just the fact that it's using magical characters and things like that sort of pulls you away from this notion of you know reality or uh photorealism uh i'd also say that there's kind of a semantic war a semantics war that we could get into over what's realistic and what let's what do isn't. it yeah i mean i would say that you know you could argue um that a lot of films that are photographic you know a lot of people would say that's just hyper reality that's not that's not photo real photo real tends to look kind of bland and uh and you know um for lack of a better word crappy uh, so as, as hey, artists, this is a, this is a artists. family friendly podcast we have here. <laughs> Don't be bringing that language to uh, this podcast, buddy. <laughs> damn it. Uh, yeah. So our, I think the tendency for, for artists and visual artists in general is to find a way to make reality look better than what it is, um, to, to create a world or a fantastical place. And, and while we can be in this beautiful Polish landscape with, the trees and the tree line and, and fog rolling through the hills and, you know, these amazing vistas that you see in the Witcher. Um, I have to say that, you know, it's, it's still in the realm of like hyper realism or a stylized realism. I mean, it, like just, just for the sunsets alone, you know, if you play the game, they're really saturated. They're, they're definitely larger than that. Life. And it's like the windiest game I've ever played in my life. Like, I don't understand why it's <laughs> yeah. just like windy, like all the time, but I, I, I you know, I, I, I kind of wish I could ask the developers uh, questions and maybe I should, you know, stalk them on Twitter or something. But I have this feeling that the game gets stormier the further along in the story you are. Maybe. Um, I, and I don't know if that's true, but I know some other titles have done kind of similar thematic things like like Last of Us totally did like a, a spring, summer, fall, winter kind of a, you know, seasonal motif. Yeah, Max- to the Max story. Payne, the first Max Payne had the uh, encroaching storm that was always sort of in the background of that game. Yeah, that was like written yeah. into the story. Yeah, was- totally. Uh, I've been playing. Um, I actually finally just finished. It took me four months because the game unnerves me, and it. I like to play games to relax a lot of the times. But uh, on Sunday, I, I just finished Resident Evil Seven, and uh, that's a real good looking game, especially on PC. And uh, yeah, it's scary as hell. It's uh, it's I would say definitely going for the the photorealistic look for the most part, and uh, that's real un- that's real unsettling, when, especially when you're playing. You know, it's a first person game, and things jump out at you. Definitely keeps you on edge. Would you say that it's totally a spiritual successor to PT, or is it kind of its own beast? Uh, it's its own beast for sure. It's not going for like the psychological horror as much as PT was, but it it does it has elements of that that you could see for sure. But it's very much a Resident Evil game, um, especially after like the first half hour. You're you're definitely putting statues into holes to unlock doors, you know that kind of nonsense. But as far as the graphics go, it's it's pretty good. Now, does the Resident Evil game have sort of those uh, overly grotesque creatures like the the previous Resident Evils did? Things like liquors and stuff like that. Yeah, um, 
without, you know, I'm not going to get into any spoilers or anything, but it definitely has, you know, it's a, I don't think it's a surprise to anyone that the one of the viruses shows up again in this game and it creates some some monstrosities that are kind of larger than life. And that definitely, I think, leads it back down towards a stylized art design, but it's very much in a, you know, photorealistic type of environment that they're going for. I was just going to ask you, JJ, something you said while we were talking about Witcher sort of prompted me to think about this, but do you think it's possible to have a quote unquote realistic looking monster that is impossible to exist in the the real world? Is there is that something that can be achieved? Um, like, how should I say it? Like, is that something that can be photorealistic or by its very nature, does that exclude it from being realistic i think i think what you're describing is kind of the goal or or the ultimate holy grail for any artist in this kind of field you know that the intention is to follow you know muscle groups and and get anatomy close to something that we understand or recognize as real and uh so yeah absolutely i mean if you look at something like uh avatar for example james cameron's avatar you know they they spent a lot of time trying to think about anatomy of these animals and kind of how they would you know, naturally flow and move and, and have different uh, behavioral mechanisms and defense mechanisms to survive in, in that ecosystem. So, I mean, really the pursuit of realism is, you know, kind of storytelling on a grand scale and trying to get, you know, all these disparate elements to work together uh, to form something that's, I guess, holistically convincing. Um uh, just looking at some of these screenshots, I haven't had the chance to play Resident Evil 7 yet, um, but I loved PT, and so it's been kind of on the docket of something I'd like to play eventually. And yeah, I, I agree. I definitely think they're shooting for that uh, photorealistic quality is pretty close. I'd say if I had to pick a game, which I haven't played much of, um, but that has that you know, pretty close to cinematic photorealism, would probably be Star Wars Battlefront. But maybe you guys have more experience than I do playing that. Uh, I have not played it. I've seen some of the screenshots, especially I think um, like some heavily modded versions of the game that uh, when I showed my wife, she was not able to distinguish it from reality. She thought she was looking at uh, pictures from like behind the scenes for the next film. Yeah, I played the, the through the beta. It's it's a very good looking game, and it and it runs incredibly. It's uh, that engine. It's the I think it's the Frostbite Two engine. Uh, it, it's, it's the most impressive graphics I have seen bar none. Um, it battlefield one runs on the same engine and it, it looks, it looks just as good. It's, it's, it's real, it's real nice, but, um, you know, half the time you're just running around trying not to get shot. So I'd like to see that tech put into a single player game where you can kind of get down and look at, at the details because, uh, it's really, really an, an impressive tech. Are you sure it's is it uh, is it Frostbite two or is it Frostbite three? I don't know. I can't keep no, no, up no. anymore. <laughs> I used to I used to follow game engines pretty pretty closely, but uh, I don't even know anymore. Uh, let me see. Oh, you know what? Game is built with Frostbite three. Okay. Yeah. Wow, I didn't. I did not know um, that they were already onto three. Yeah. The uh, there's some incredible technology that's going out right now, and and, and there's actually kind of an interesting segue if you want to talk about it with regard to what needs to be modeled anymore. You know, do we even need to model anymore? Do we just do photogrammetry and face scan or scan people uh, or scan uh, trees and, and roots and 
grass and all this other stuff. Um, if you look at uh, a website like megascans.com, um, or if it's, I don't know if it's megascans, it might be just Quixel, uh, but megascans is a product from Quixel and they, they basically recreate, you know, as photoreal as possible, uh, different assets for the environment. And it, the results are stunning. I mean, it's, it's incredible. And then you have features like speed tree or, or products like speed tree, which lets you do the same thing with different, uh, foliage and, and plants and, and, and all that good stuff. So, um, you know, it does beg the question at what point for the mundane, at least, what are you, you know, is there even an, is there even a need to build these things anymore? Um, when there's so much available, uh, to, to, to create stuff, unless you're creating a stylized world, do you even need to build it? Well, that brings up kind of an interesting point. Cause it sounds like at least the, the things that you're discussing are sort of pre-constructed, um, models. Is that correct? Well, no, they're, um, what, what, how do well, you, mean? I, it, they sound like, like essentially pre-made assets that you can, that you would utilize in, um, in your game. So, or you were talking about, um, sounded like some sort of hardware software where you were, um, is it like scanning in real life objects basically? Yeah. Scanning of- in. Yeah. So are you, are you guys familiar with photogrammetry at all? No, uh, no, it's been getting a lot more popular than uh, the last couple of years. It's, it's kind of grown exponentially, but basically you take a series of photographs and it gets run through a software package and that software package will translate the photographs into a 3d image baking the color information onto the 3d object. That's insane. And, and what it outputs is essentially a point cloud and that point cloud gets sort of translated into a mesh. And so you can, you can then take that mesh and uh, do a process called retopologizing uh, or retopology, uh, which basically lets you lower the poly count. So it's friendly for a game environment. Uh, Cause otherwise you're talking, you know, millions of ponds, millions of triangles, to, you know, represent this like muddy ground. (laughs) Yeah. So I guess my main thing against, um, basically, you know, taking an object and scanning it into a thing is that you're not actually creating something. You're basically making a copy of it and digitizing it. Um, I saw a video the other day that kind of blew me out of the water. There was, uh, there's an AI and I don't remember who's working on this AI because I'm very bad at, uh, taking notes here, but, uh, basically, the AI went through and scanned every single piece of Rembrandt's paintings. Every painting, it went through, it scanned it. It it basically learned, like, this is how Rembrandt paints a nose. This is how Rembrandt shades. And it goes through all that. They run it through whatever algorithms they do. And then they have it hooked up to uh, a, a robotic printer. And this computer created an original Rembrandt that's never been painted by Rembrandt himself, but it is technically Rembrandt in the fact that it learned everything that it painted by learning how Rembrandt used to paint paintings. It it was like super unnerving. It was like this computer made something new that never existed before, uh, basically by learning how the painter did something. So, you know, we're almost getting to that point now where AI and computers can create original pieces of work and they don't really even need necessarily uh, a creative human mind behind it. And that's, that's, that's kind of scary, but also like super intriguing. And the, Absolutely. the thing that I was kind of trying to get to a little earlier was, uh, sounds like it's a, in line with what you're talking about, Jared, which is that if you just, if you scan a tree and you copy a tree a million times, you end up with a forest 
of a bunch of trees that all look the same. Uh, and and I uh, I had linked a a video to you guys. It's um, from Numberphile. It's a YouTube channel, and they were talking about the Chaos game, which is basically just a, a set of points, uh, and then they're rolling a die, and based on the outcome of the die, they're they're placing a dot somewhere between those points. Um, but one of the things they showed in that one is that there's like a sort of setup of triangles um, that you can do. You can set up some triangles, and then as you roll the die, um, you're moving between the points on the triangles. And what you end up with is a shape that looks like a leaf. Uh, and it's totally random. I mean, it, it, someone just sort of found out that, like, oh, if you kind of lay this game out this way, it creates this image of a leaf. But the, the point that they were making with it was that that randomness creates realism in a way that if we could program some way to have have there be imperfections yeah. in things and inconsistencies in things that that will lead more to realism than just, uh, you know, whatever, copying a couple of of trees and reusing that asset over and over again. Yeah, math math has a funny way of kind of mimicking a lot of things in life. I mean, that it's kind of like that movie Pi. It's it's there's some very intriguing Wait, things. Wait, I haven't seen it yet. Don't spoil math. it. Yeah, a movie that's like 20 years old. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty yeah, it's pretty old. Uh it's it's there's a lot of really intriguing things about mathematics and how they can mimic uh reality. Um in particular to what you're describing, it's a pretty good segue into procedural generated content, which is all No Man's Sky. And uh, if we were to talk about, you know, speed tree, a lot of that content is procedural as well. So you described, you know, a tree that's the same tree. Yeah, you, you can certainly export the same tree, but you can also use algorithms to give you variation in trees. Um, and the fact that it is more math based uh, means that you're going to have a lot less overhead. So you're able to populate the world with a lot more of these things uh, with, you know, fewer memory requirements and other things. I mean, it's not, it's, I'm not saying it's one-to-one, but it's, it's definitely, I think, the way that a lot of high-density objects will get produced in the future. Let's talk about uh, why designers choose to, uh, to go for a photorealistic look and then maybe why some designers choose not to. JJ, you said you're working on a couple of games. Are you, are you in either of those projects uh, planning on using realistic looking graphics or are you going to go for a more stylized approach? So I think um, just from you know, an indie dev standpoint, you have to kind of pay attention to scope. Scope creep is just like one of these things where, you know, you have all these grand ideas and then you just have to weigh it back and be like, eh, I don't know if I could do all these things that I want. Um, and, you know, it's nice when you have something like Kickstarter or some, you know, uh, some sort of crowdsource to help you uh, get where you want to go. But if you don't have that, then you really do have to kind of acknowledge that maybe, you know, I have to be realistic on what my goals are. And I think the number one reason why you see a lot of indie games that don't take the route of photorealism is that right there. You know, there's just so much involved with rigging and so much involved with lighting and shading to get, uh, you know, a photoreal quality. Think of the hundreds of developers working on something like Battlefront uh, and how much time uh, and specific skills necessary to, to build something like that. I mean, you got one guy who writes shaders and that's all he does. And he's brilliant at writing shaders. You know, another guy who who handles the intersection points between uh, rocks and something like, you know, sand. And so when a rock gets close to sand, it generates a mask that basically 
lets the sand flow over the rock naturally, like like it's part of the world, you know, so you don't have clipping. I mean, you're, we're talking like really yeah. advanced things that take a lot of time to develop. And uh, it's it's not very feasible for an indie to do that. So I think just just from from a matter of scope, I think that's probably the number one reason why they don't pursue photorealist re- realistic stuff. So what, what what do you think that bigger developers might not like? What what are some of the downsides of pursuing realistic graphics, even for bigger developers? Right, because we saw Mass Effect Andromeda just came out kind of recently. And, um, you know, I would say they're going for a semi-realistic look, you know, sci-fi look, but uh, they caught a lot of flack for a lot of their facial animations and, and some, some of that kind of stuff. So uh, what, what are some of the downfalls of, you know, the endless pursuit of realism? When it comes to Mass Effect Andromeda, I mean, it's you got a world class team of, of people making some incredible content and. You know, scope creep happens to them too. Um, you know, they get given these deadlines and then they can't meet the deadlines. And when you talk about an RPG in particular, you need systems in place so that you're not hand animating uh, every single encounter you have with an NPC. So a lot of times, you know, Witcher is a good example of this too, actually done really well. How do you, you basically set up these procedural systems that read waveforms and those waveforms can then generate facial shapes to sort of animate the character. And what you'll get out of that is something maybe you can tweak by hand. Um, maybe some animators don't get enough time to do that. Maybe, you know, there, there could be a number of reasons why, you know, my face is tired became a meme. Uh, I, I feel pretty, I feel pretty bad for all the people that worked really hard on that. Cause I mean, other than that, the game does look pretty good. For sure. And like, I think like a lot of things that a lot of the facts that people overlook when they're so quick to jump on these, you know, these flaws that, that come out are as the scope of games get bigger and bigger, like the right. more time, you know, stuff like this has to pop up. So, um, you know, it's, I'm not, I'm not going to throw them a complete free pass because they're a giant studio, but you know, it's, it's hard. Game developing totally. is hard. Mm, mm. I'm hearing a lot of mass effect apologizing going on here. Jared known, uh, apologists. Yeah. I think this is, um, like representative of an important issue in pursuing realistic graphics though. We, we mentioned it earlier. There's this thing, the uncanny Valley. Um, and, and for those people who might not know, it's this idea that as you start to move closer and closer to realism, things look better and better. And then there's this sharp drop off point right before you get to one-to-one realism where things start to look creepy and weird before you come back out the other side. Thus that, the uh, the term valley there where things start looking okay again but that's yeah, a real concern I, I, in in oh. game design is if you're going to go for that approach you know if you're going to go for that graphical look of we're we're going to make this photorealistic you better nail it and yeah uh, if all your spaceships look amazing and all, all of the rocks and textures and metals look amazing but then your faces are just messed up and they, it could really pull a lot of people out of it and i i think um in a lot of ways we've kind of you know reached uh to the precipice of that as far as visual fidelity you know in in just modeling texturing and lighting i think we're pretty much there i think i think we're past that problem i think where it really falls apart is animation and once once you start putting things in motion you know our, our brains are just naturally wired to read and communicate 
emotions and expressions and the moment we see something in motion and it's just automatic we recognize that it's fake it doesn't work it looks weird it looks awkward i mean a good example of this is is uh tron like uh tron legacy and jeff bridges (laughs) character he just looked he just looked kind of weird and it's not really a slight against the artists the guys who worked on this are world-class dudes They're, they're incredibly talented but everyone knows um, what jeff bridges you, looks like so it's like exactly. man that looks really good but also i am i've never been more creeped out yeah so it's i i think i think part of it's motion capture i think when it comes to games in general a big part of it is uh is integration and how you blend you know you use blend spaces to to move between animations in game in real time uh and how to kind of move those things well uh, is still a pretty big challenge for any studio. I remember when I was a kid and I got my Nintendo 64 and I plugged in Wave Race and I saw that water for the first time and I was like, holy crap, like games are never going to look better than this. And then very yeah, that, quickly they, they did. <laughs> but, you know, that game, you for, go, that game for me was uh, Metal Gear Solid 2. And actually, yes. specifically, Zone of the Enders with the demo for Metal Gear Solid 2, I remember That's, thinking. Like the only is reason it. I bought that game was for that. Oh, yeah. For that you and, you and like demo. millions of other people. <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm in the same boat there. I bought it, but I, I enjoyed but Zone the, of the Enders. I actually like. I guess the my main point too, was that like you go back now and you look at most Nintendo 64 games, and they just they're like they're they look real bad. They do. They look super bad. And uh, I can go back one generation before that to you know the Super Nintendo where they, they weren't using 3D models and they weren't going for super realism. And all that art still looks real good. So is this is this a problem going forward? Are we going to start op- making graphics and, and games obsolete more quickly the faster that we pursue realistic graphics? I, I definitely think there's something to be said about um, older games, you know, not looking or playing as well as you know their newer counterparts and that sort of test of time you know is really dependent on how how well they play you know mario the first mario still plays and it's still from an art perspective i think still looks great and it works right um so i think you know when as games get older and, and as more and more people produce games you know we've seen this sort of evolution of style um you know developers have lived through and played games through all these different generations so now you know pixel art isn't a requirement it's a style choice you know it's it's just like in film you know if you choose to do something in black and white or if you choose to do something uh like speed racer where everything's like super saturated and crazy um it's kind of it just becomes a style it's it's aged the art form has aged long enough to become a style, not just a requirement. And I, I think when it comes to games, it's you know it's a lot of the same kind of a thing where you you make a choice, but ultimately, you know, how does this game play? Is it fun? If it's not fun, it's not going to stand the test of time. Now, I, I kind of want to go back to something you'd said, JJ, which was you think graphically we're there. It's just things like motion uh, and those like subtle movements are what's holding us back from achieving the true look of realism. Did I, am I sort of summing that up correctly or is there? Well, with, you know, all caveats aside. Yeah. That's, I I think, I think for the most part we're there. I mean, we're still limited on like texture resolution and you know, how many shaders we can throw at a computer at once and still have it play in real time. There's still technical limitations to overcome, but I think the fidelity of like, you know, is this a still, is this a computer generated? Is this a photo? Is this a computer generated image? I think we're at the point where we can, you know, if you're really good, you can make something that 
is is achievable. Um, whether or not you can get that to run in real time, yeah. that's another question. See, I believe that in with envir- things like environments um, and things like inanimate objects, I would agree. I think in a lot of cases, there are games like uh, Star Wars Battlefront where you can show someone a screenshot of that and trick them into thinking it's from the upcoming movie. But I think part of that is because we're kind of cheating in a way and showing stormtroopers in their plastic uniforms uh, in a sort of rocky environment or in a forest environment. But I think that we still have a long way to go when it comes to people. And, and that's, and that's not based on movement or, or, you know, those kinds of subtle things. I think in a big way, we're still a long way away from being able to trick someone into, into believing that uh, a still they're seeing from, um, like let's say Mortal Kombat X, which I think has some of the best character modeling in video games right now. But no one's gonna go like, oh, is that a real picture of of a person or or is that a video game? That engine does have really good uh, animations. Did they mocap everything in Mortal Kombat X? Does anyone know? It, I have no idea. I, I would guess it's probably mocap at least partially. And, I, and I'm not even I'm not even speaking in like the character's motion or anything. I mean, when you see. Um, there's some some really great modeled characters in that game, like Cassie Cage, and she's got some um, sort of cool poses after fights where you look at it and you're like, oh my gosh, you know, they put a lot of work into this, and her her skin looks like skin, and her clothes looks like cloth, and she's got you know sweat beating up on her, and you can see that spot where there you know there's like the blood dripping off from over there, you know, there's a lot of really neat things going on, but no one would ever look at that and go, is that a real picture? Yeah, and I've kind of uh, run into this in other industries too. I um, had the pleasure last year of interviewing the uh, man who does all the costume design for all the Marvel movies, and uh, he kind of got into the nitty gritty of like I asked him, you know, like what are some of the things that you're most proud of? And he was talking about um, the he did the Black Panther suit, and he did his team did some really cool tech with that, with making. Um, you know, like all the muscles and like uh, the muscles and stuff are built into the suit, but like it, it, they went through like a lot of painstaking uh, work to get those muscles to actually contract and move correctly so that when the actor, you know, was able to move in the suit, it didn't look like he was wearing a big piece of rubber with fake muscles. Um, and I, I think that that's those kind of details that carry over into video games that they add a lot. The reason I bring up uh, the reason I bring up any of this is just because I think generally when we look at the graph that's drawn for the uncanny valley, it always seems like once you come out the other side of that uncanny valley, it's a short trip to you know perfect realism. And I feel like in some ways we've gone, you know, we have clawed our way out the uh, the other side of the valley to the point where we don't look at Mortal Kombat and go, oh god, it looks so weird, you know, it's, it's off putting. But it's also not realistic, and I think that the you know whatever it is, you know whatever your analogy is you know the last five yards uh, in the football game, it, it it's it's huge. You know, it seems like at least the way it's been presented to me is like oh it, you know once we get out of the valley, it's just two steps until we get to perfect realism, and I think it's a lot more than that. But it those those things that we need to accomplish are much more subtle, and I think animation is part of it, like you were talking about, JJ, getting those like little ticks right. You know, the way a person's eyes move or the way a person's mouth moves when they speak, those things are dead giveaways. But I think also on the, the modeling side, we still have a long way to go. I think there's a couple of linchpin points, you know, um, in real time specifically. You know, hair never tends to look good. You, you'll see a couple of shops do hair really well. But I mean, 
you know, even in Mass Effect Andromeda, they look kind of like dolls. They didn't look very, you know, the hair just doesn't quite look right. It doesn't sit on the head right. I think Witcher has done hair really well. I think um, Destiny did a did a terrible <laughs> job with hair. I, th- I oh, do I, we I think, talk shit um, about Destiny now? Is it oh, that, God, that yeah. turn of the podcast? Yeah. <laughs> I uh, well, but Des- Destiny plays pretty well, at least at least what it's supposed to do. Um, but like when when we talk about you know um, this uncanny valley, I mean this isn't a new concept. If you go back to early Disney days, take a little you know field trip back to you know Snow White, people were creeped out. You know, uh, I think I think it was Mark Davis, and maybe somebody listening can correct me if I'm wrong. But I think it was Mark Davis who was one of the first guys to really nail uh, you know the feminine form in animation and make it feel appealing while still being recognizable, you know, as a, as a female. Um, It's one of those things where it's like, that's, that's why you have characters with basic shapes. That's why design played such a heavy role in animation, early animation in particular, because you don't have to trick the mind into thinking this is a human person. You can acknowledge that there's a little bit of leeway there and just personify the objects you're seeing and, and humanize them that way. Well, I've I've got a question. Do you typically find that you prefer a a game that that is in pursuit of realism and graphics, or do you prefer the opposite? You wanted to talk about Journey and Inside. Do you find that you prefer one one style over the other? No, not at all. I think for me, I I just like to see a good experience. I don't really care if it's if it's stylized or photoreal, or uh, I just like games that sort of challenge certain conventions and, and try to do uh, interesting things. And, and mostly I, I focus on games with good stories. Um, I don't really play a lot of multiplayer, but I would say like, if you were to go onto a site like ZBrush central and just kind of, you know, peruse around some What's of their ZBrush galleries. Central? So ZBrush is an application that's designed to do high poly modeling. So like if you wanted to do a really detailed sculpt of somebody's face you would probably do it in ZBrush or a competitor product like Mudbox. Um, and, and you get in there and you can get, you know, pores on the skin, all the wrinkles, you know, neck fat, you know, whatever, whatever it is you're trying to get, you can really get immensely detailed models. And if you go on there, you know, you'll see people who've done studies of like actors. Uh, you know, I think I saw one the other day of like Clint Eastwood and it was, it was uncanny, dude. It was <laughs> not to be a, to, to make a pun or something, but I mean, it was ridiculously good. And these are, these are um, just static uh, 3d models, right? Like they're not animated. Correct. Yeah, correct. I mean, I saw another one of Morgan Freeman. Um, and it's like, you know, you look at these and, and they're fantastic. That is a man with a lot of detail um, in his face. And uh, right. Um, and they cap, they managed to capture the subtlety of their expression. And uh, it, it, it's like, when you see that kind of stuff, it's like, to me, I feel like there are people which definitely depends on their skill level, but there are people that can can reach that quality, that level that's really close to you know bridging the gap. Um, I do think you're right, though. I think the Uncanny Valley is a bit of an exponential curve. You know, it, it's it doesn't it's it's not gonna like the closer you get to perfect, the harder it is. So it's just this curve that's gonna forever go down to infinity, and you know you'll always be limited by your own talents and your own ability to do you to think do, it, it. do you think that we can't achieve it do you think it it's truly impossible in video games to have a game where as you're playing it you think you're watching a, a video uh, like a a live action movie uh i don't know if i can answer that i feel like it's 
I feel like it's not impossible, but it is. I think maybe we'll we'll get there with (laughs) VR, right? Like if you're actually in it, like when you're in VR, I think that is going to be the moment. You know, if if we can get games looking that good in VR, that I think that's going to be the moment where uh, we're going to be in trouble and people are never going to leave their houses. Probably. I mean, it's interesting that you mentioned VR. VR is is a, a whole new frontier in a lot of ways, but just from a, a performance standpoint, you know, everything that we used to think works, you know, has to be sort of dialed back because it takes a lot to render, you know, two frames simultaneously at a high resolution at what is it? 11 milliseconds to get persistence. I mean, that's, that's crazy fast. That's like, that's like playing your game on ultra high and, you know, rendering two versions of it and trying to do it, you know, at, at 90 frames per yeah, second. Yeah, and I mean, no one's ever going to be playing a game and looking at their TV and, like, lose touch with reality and be like, oh my gosh, is that real? Like, am I looking through a window? Like, I just don't think, I don't think the medium will ever lend itself to to being completely photorealistic simply by the fact that you're staring at a at a 2D image on a, on a flat screen. Well, that's why, that's why it's called, like, photorealism is you know it's it's it would be not that you think like oh my gosh am i looking at a window window into another world it's you know it would be more synonymous to like am i watching a movie or is someone playing this in real time i I feel like that's always been maybe not for all game developer all game developers but for a long time that has been the goal of video game graphics is like we're constantly pushing towards that that photorealism and not just in video games, obviously in film and, and things like that as well. But I would argue that it it wouldn't necessarily be just the pursuit of photorealism, but more as a, a way to find a truth in something that you're creating. So if you're, if your focus is to create a game experience that feels like, you know, a real true experience, then you might have to go for photorealism. But if your goal is to express some kind of an emotion or um, show the player something in a different, you know, in a, in a different way that they maybe haven't experienced yet, you're, you're going to produce something like Journey. You know, Journey was a really interesting title. I had a pretty good experience playing it. I don't know if you guys I played, played through that with my wife and we loved, we loved that game. That was like the first game she ever just sat down and and played with me all the way through, and that was that was that was kind of special. Yeah, you know, it's it's an interesting title because you have these gorgeous visuals, but it's all very minimalist design. And then you have you know a wonderful soundtrack to go with it. And then uh, on top of that, you you kind of challenge conventions a little bit. You know, you you play with other players, but it's not competitive. I had this really interesting moment uh, when I played the game, where. You know, you get to this part, not to spoil anything, but you get pursued a little bit by, you know, these sentinel creatures that are kind of wandering the interior of this mountain when you get closer to the mountain. And uh, if they hit you, they they basically take away your scarf, like your scarf tail thing. It, like, removes it. And, and you know, I, I watched this guy make a bad move, and he lost all of his stuff. And it was, like, a really sad moment. And, and you can respond and talk to them kind of, uh, and they can choose to listen to you or not, but you don't really have this competitive edge the way that, you know, a lot of multiplayer games are typically structured. We're talking about video game graphics, connecting people more and more to the world that they're building. I think there's other ways to do that. Like, you know, like you said, journey made you connect in different, in a different way. Like it's very simplistic graphics, but it's basically like a moving painting. And, you know, I, I think that we, we don't have to endlessly pursue 
photorealism to get that feeling. Yeah, I mean, another example is Inside. I, I haven't played it yet, but it's like on my short list, especially since it's not a super That, long that game, game is art. You know, it's, it's literally it's very... art inside. It, it has some of the <laughs> coolest stuff I have seen in a game. Uh, one of one of the games that uh, I guess I'll bring up for this part of the discussion is a game called Proteus, which I think is actually the first time I've mentioned it on this podcast. Although, as we record more and more episodes, I'm sure listeners will probably get tired of hearing me talk about this game because I think in some ways it's it represents the perfect video game. I don't know that it is the perfect video game, but I think it's steps in into that direction. But uh, that's a game that does not attempt in any way to to have photorealistic graphics. It's very stylized, very minimal. It's like, um, I would say it goes beyond stylized almost into abstract. In some, yeah, in some cases I would agree with you. I think that's a, perf- a perfect example of what we talked about earlier where video games have, you know, moved past the point where you have to, you're, you're forced into that style. It, it's now, you know, a style choice. It's a, it's a stylistic yeah, but th- choice. Now this I think is important for this discussion because I think, it it's not just that they didn't have the resources, so they made a game that looks crummy. And I don't think it looks crummy. I think it looks like uh, you know a, a piece of art, like a painting. Um, but and but they are in some ways you know relying on your understanding that oh this looks like a mountain, this looks like a tree, that looks like an owl. So there is some connection to the real world in in the style that they've chosen. But they've chosen a very simple art style that matches the gameplay for that game. There's Basically, you don't really have any way to interact with that world except to move through it. You're, you have very little impact, which is quite simple. So the graphics represent that. And I think that if they, in that game, they had chosen to go with a more photorealistic style, even if they had unlimited resources and could do it, I don't think it would be wise to do that because I think it would betray you know, the gameplay itself for that game. Does that make sense? Do I sound like a yeah, crazy, I do I sound like a crazy think- man? No, and I have very different opinions on Proteus, which we we won't get into in this episode. But we, on one of the, one of these days, <laughs> we'll talk we'll talk in depth about Proteus. And we'll just have a separate I, I episode of this saying. podcast where we we fight like actual fist fight and just record it. <laughs> Welcome to our spinoff podcast. We're all it's all Proteus all the time. It's a twice weekly show, just arguing about the game Proteus. I could do it, dude. I could fill. I could I fill think, two episodes a week about Proteus, no problem. And I could fill three for why you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I think. I think there's definitely something to be said about like your design matching your aesthetic. I think that that's a critical uh, lesson that I think a lot of people should always, you know, indie devs especially. Um, well, pros too. I mean, I I feel like that's a lesson you're always learning. It's like don't make something that isn't right for your game. I mean. If it's too complicated and and too overbearing, then it, it and it doesn't fit your aesthetic. And how do you you know is it is it really a good design? I think that's an interesting question. Um, I, another example is like, uh, did you guys play Firewatch at all? I did. I did not. I, I did. You guys I enjoy it? Plenty about it. What was the question? I I did. I did. Enjoy yes, it? I love Firewatch. I uh, just uh, Ollie Moss did a lot of design stuff for that game, and it's just a, a very very pretty title um but you know it's it's simplistic in its own way and it, it has a lot of depth in the characters and, and the writing but as far as the gameplay you know it it's i think it's a good match i think it fits what they set out to to accomplish 
with their visual design. I think they could have taken it further if they wanted to. Um, something like Team Fortress 2, you know, is a lot more action-oriented. It's a similar aesthetic. Yeah, it seems but. like they very much had a story to tell, and um, they, they found a good art style to match it. But, yeah, I, I could I could see them expanding on that in their next, whatever their next project is. Now, I don't want to go on too much longer because we're already running a little bit long, but games that look realistic, does that affect the way that you... Uh, experience those games at all? And I'll, I'll direct this to you, JJ. Do you find that when you're playing a game that looks, you know, pretty close to photorealistic, that you behave differently than you would, uh, you know, in a game that that's chosen a, a more artistic approach? Yeah, I think that's uh, totally fair. I I I probably do, um, either consciously or subconsciously, which is probably the same reason that uh, so many fans backlashed when Andromeda came out, and people were like. You know, my face is tired. <laughs> I'm interested in if you think like as we get closer and closer to complete one to one photorealism, if things like violence will, you know, people will approach violent video games in a different way. Is that something that you see potentially happening in the future or is that something you see now? Do you feel like you as a player in The Witcher 3 go like, oh, I don't want to I don't want to you know, kill this villager or this thug or whatever it is because they look like a real person. I, you know, you, are you making that emotional connection or do you foresee a, a time in the future where we make that emotional connection simply because of the graphics? Well, I would say like we, we don't only need to consider how realistic graphics will affect what players do in the game, you know, that's under their control, but the things that happen to the players themselves, Resident Evil 7, very good looking game, first Resident Evil to be first person. There's there's moments in that game, and I haven't played it in VR, and I hear this, it's even, it's amplified 10, 10 times in VR, but, uh, you know, something will jump out at you, and it, and it grabs you, and it, this, you know, it's like a person looking straight in your eyes, and they're, they're trying to hurt you. And that's like that's very un that's very unsettling. Like that that's like it messes with me. Like more so like you know Resident any any other horror game you played Resident Evil Two you know for the PlayStation um, you you pop off heads with a magnum. It's like whatever. It's like cartoon violence. But when someone is looking at you and you're looking in their eyes and you can see their pupils dilate and they're and they're trying to hurt you like that's that could be traumatic, especially for you know people with certain psychological disorders. So. Uh, developers, I think, are going to have to start thinking about that kind of thing and how far is going to be too far, especially when we're getting closer and closer uh, with with how our graphics are. I'm willing to bet people will uh, let them know with their wallets. I, people will love that shit. Is for the first time someone like sues because they had like some traumatic PTSD or something, or someone has a heart attack. Like that 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 game is going to make more money than any game ever. I'm really curious. I'm really curious about <laughs> yeah, that. I, I, I agree. I don't know. I have this this weird theory, and I've held it for a very long time. That once graphics achieve like perfect reality, that we will start to see games that move away from violent tendencies and not not for I don't know. I, I think it'll happen because people will be, I think, more off put when the the violence that they're enacting starts to have those almost real world consequences. I wonder if that that'll affect uh how people think about war and real life violence you know i wonder i wonder if um some people who are less than reserved about going to war with other countries will think about that kind of thing when they can experience that that type of uh trauma in 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 a in a virtual way that seems very authentic 
there, there will still be people. I, there will definitely be a market for that, for people who are like, yeah, 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 I want to see that. But I think a lot more people will find that a turnoff and we'll see, we'll see the continuation of stylized violence or we'll see a move towards a, another type of game that doesn't revolve around force in that way. And it will, I think it will be because of the way that graphics have, have changed that landscape. There's one last thing that I wanted to mention before we move on. And mostly it's because we kind of tweeted it out and I'm excited about the, uh, the article that this is attached to, but, uh, there's, there's a question that kind of comes up, which is what do we have to achieve or what do we have to overcome before we achieve one-to-one realism in graphics? And there was a controversial article that was written in the Atlantic by uh, author Ian Bogost. This quote has very little to do with the, uh, the thesis of the article, but I'll, I'll just read it here real quick. It says, in- incremental improvements in visual fidelity make 3D worlds seem more and more real, but those worlds feel even more incongruous when the people that inhabit them behave like anim- uh, animatronics and the environments work like Potemkin villages. Um, I, I would encourage people to go look up this article. It's called Video Games Are Better Without Stories because I think it makes a lot of good points, but... This point in particular, I think, is um, important for our discussion because I think one of the big things that we have to consider as we're trying to achieve one-to-one realism in video game graphics is all of those other things that are built around the graphics, not just the graphics themselves. How do you? Right. How do you feel if about you're talking that? about realism on the scope of everything that that goes into a realistic setting and not just the visual fidelity, right? Yeah. Yeah. I think that there's like some there's crossover though. I mean, maybe there's not. Maybe I'm trying to read a little bit too much more into this than there is. But I think that until we sort of have a a better understanding of what makes a world real, we will sort of handicap ourselves from being able to achieve a realistic looking world graphically. Sure. I mean, in Skyrim, like you can mod the hell out of that game till you have you know depending on your your graphical abilities of your computer you can you can have like very nice looking textures great shaders and all that kind of thing uh but you can only walk by the guy talking about the the arrow in his knee so many times before you want to pull your hair out like it's just the their limitations on dialogue and ai behavior obviously brings us takes us a little bit further away from that goal of realism um I guess, is that kind of what you're getting at? I feel like you can't make the argument that video games are better without stories because stories are what provide games with context. I think it's a really reductionist argument to say that. That's not to say that you can't have games with really minimal stories or little to no story, you know, something like Tetris, but not all games are Tetris. It's it's kind of a... We get into this weird semantic argument about, you know, what is a video game and... Um, I've had that argument with a couple of people, but my personal philosophy is, is that you can't, you can have a game with a story. You can have a game without a story. Are they better or worse? I think that depends on the game. Yeah, I agree with a lot of the things that he says in this article, and we don't have to spend much time on it here because most of it doesn't really relate to our topic. But I think what he says about graphics here is important. I think everyone should, everyone should check this article out. I mean, I know it's kind of been making the rounds online and I'm sure it will uh, evoke a lot of emotional responses from people on on both sides. Um, I, I I agree with you, JJ. 
that I, I think story is important to video games. Uh, I just think that maybe the point that he's trying to make and the point that over the course of this podcast, I think I'll probably try to make is that we haven't found the right way to tell stories in video games yet, at least not perfectly. I think that there's some truth to that. And I think that one of the arguments in that article that they talk a little bit about is, you know, the way games tell stories differently. And there's, there's actually a a game of Sutra article that just came out. It's uh, called story. What is it good for? It's a blog post uh, and it's it's fantastic as sort of a rebuttal to this. He's actually talking about this article, which is kind of funny. Basically, you know, this the, the idea is that games, something that they're really good at is is you never really stop telling a story. The environments tell a story. The characters and NPCs tell a story. Everything around you, the light tells a story. It, it never really stops doing that. And it, and as you explore the world, you're informed about what is you know what it means to be in this world and, and what your place in it is. And I think an example of, you know, achieving realism, if we were to continue to go back to the topic, circle back to the topic, uh, we need to have situations where, you know, the player is surprised to find that these NPCs, these animatronic characters, as uh, Ian refers to them as, you know, are doing things to surprise the player. Like in uh, the Mass Effect Mass Effect 3, for example, you know, when you walk into a different part of the ship and suddenly, you know, two characters have moved from their normal location and are now communicating and they don't need you to be there. Of course, you're the reason that they triggered that animation. But the point is, is that they surprise you in ways you didn't fully expect. And we need situations like that to kind of further tell stories and, and let players be a part of the worlds that they're in. And I think... You know, just as The Witcher, as an example, not to keep coming back to it, does a very good job of trying to balance this with the with the size and scope of that game. Well, I think this is actually a sort of an excellent segue into uh, inviting people to give us their feedback on this topic uh, about stories and games and also about uh, realistic graphics in games. So, of course, people can always reach out to us on email at podcast at gbfeature.com or you can connect with us on Twitter at gbfeature. We've been getting a lot of really good feedback lately, some good questions, some good comments on the things we've been talking about. So did we want to move on to just taking a look at some of the, that feedback, Jared? Yeah, um, I can go straight to some of the feedback we got from our SideQuest episode. Chester Copperpot on Facebook, he says that uh, he'd like to see Quest actually affect the storyline of a game. Uh, for example, if you spend a bunch of time doing side quests, you find out that you've missed, on, uh, you missed out on something in- integral to the main storyline. Or maybe your character can only remember so many things at once and he forgets, he or she forgets about the next part of the mission if you spend too much time doing uh, menial side quests. I thought that was a kind of a cool comment. Like, it would be interesting to see that kind of thing work its way into the mechanics of a main storyline. It'd be funny if uh, you had some kind of a Mentos situation there where you had to you had to manage your time uh, wisely. Otherwise, your, your, your character would run out of run out of uh, memory of what they were supposed to be doing. Now there's actually a really great example of this. Uh, I know, I think in that episode I was talking about Deus Ex and there's the, the part of the, towards the beginning of the game where you can spend some time investigating again. I, oh, I was totally yeah, going to You spend that. some time and you can <laughs> investigate. I think it was like a vial of blood that's gone missing. But what, what's, What's actively going on in the story is you're supposed to be getting on the helicopter and flying to the hostage situation, which is essentially the first mission of that game. 
and I if you about this. if you dick around too long at the police station, you get like a call on your comm that says like oh, you took too long and they executed all the hostages. And sure enough, when you show up to that miss to that mission, all the hostages are dead. And now, I does think, that end up like affecting anything else in the game down the line? I believe it does. Yeah, I think there's I think there are repercussions at least once you complete that that mission like i think there were benefits to keeping the hostages alive if you get to the mission on time and then we're able to you know complete it in a certain amount a uh, certain amount of time i i think that might be that that might be the only time that that comes up in that game uh that sort of timed side quest thing it definitely changed my perception when i played it i was like oh whoa things have consequences i can't just stick around yeah and- <laughs> waste time because I know where the trigger is and I know if I go this way then the game's going to progress and I just want to That's my number exploring. one complaint of side quests is it's it just takes you away from like oh I I need to go and save my daughter but first you know yeah I'm going to read a bunch of read a bunch of emails about a, a missing <laughs> vial of blood yeah. while there's a hostage situation yeah and that so that was that was really really right. great and again I don't think it, it I don't think anything like that happened again in that game. I could be mistaken or it could be parts of it that I just straight up missed because maybe I went ahead and actually did what I was supposed to do on time. But yeah, I think, I think what Chester Copperpot's pointing out here is a really great idea. Having ramifications for pursuing side questing games beyond just like, Oh, I got a little more loot. So that's a, that's a cool, uh, that's a cool piece of feedback. I like that he brought that up. Uh, that's uh, it. That's it for emails or uh, t- tweets. All right, excellent. So uh, again, people can always send emails, questions, comments, concerns, gripes, hate mail, death threats, anything they want. Is, to, isn't our sign off? Don't be a dick about it. Well, I mean, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna enforce that. People can, <laughs> people can do whatever they want. We are, we are also still soliciting ideas for future episode topics. So, and any, uh, any ideas that people have for, for what they want to hear us talk about. And uh, any of the stuff I mentioned before, please send those emails along to podcast at gbfeature.com. Yeah, let's wrap it up. Okay, well, yeah, if we've covered everything that we wanted to talk about, uh, let's go ahead and wrap this up. That's going to do it for this episode of Game Breaking Feature. As a reminder, we release new episodes every two weeks. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss anything. If you like what we do and want to help us out, head over to iTunes, give us a review. I want to thank Kyle Clark for making our theme song. You can check out his podcast, This Is Rad, on iTunes. And I want to thank... Our very special guest, JJ Chalupnik, so much for for being yeah, here. Man. It's been thanks, an excellent. Thanks for coming, and it's like yeah. I we we know very little about the technicals of game design, so it is it was cool to hear about that. Well, it's a it's a learning adventure for me too, and uh, thanks for having me, guys. It's always You're fun welcome talking back about anytime, games. brother. Yeah, anytime. This was, I mean, you you've you were the perfect guest for this uh, discussion. So thank you for for taking the time to be with us. And I also want to thank you, the listener, for taking the time to listen to us chat about games. This has been Game Breaking Feature. Remember, it's okay to disagree. Just don't be a dick about it. I'm not going to enforce that. So if you want to be a dick about it, that's fine. <laughs> All right, guys. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll see you later. Later, Jared. Later, JJ. See you guys.